Marco on the normal radio. Free weed. Free weed. Oh, yo. Danny Danko come to show you how it grows. You're now tuned in to Free Weed from Danny Danko on normal radio. Presented by High Times Magazine. See me, I say, boom, bang. Big respect. See me, I say, Danny Danko. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 79 of High Times Presents Free Weed from Danny Danko. And uh, yeah, thanks as always to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the wonderful song. Uh, we've got a special show for you guys today. Uh, it is our special 419-420 celebration. And this is a long lost show. We didn't <laughs> think we had this one t- on tape. This was the panel that we did in uh, Los Angeles in the San Bernardino area. We had a number of experts uh, in the cannabis growing world, and we talked about at length about marijuana growing. So uh, it was a live free weed episode that we uh, unfortunately thought we didn't have on tape. Well, luckily, our buddies <laughs> at uh, the National Marijuana News taped it, my friend Eddie. Yeah. And so check them out. They actually have a new app that's, uh, that's out now. Um, you can go to the App Store for uh, Android or iPhone and look up uh, National Marijuana News and download their app. I uh, really appreciate them taping this episode. They're doing great work over there. And, yeah, the panel was uh, Adam Dunn from TH Seeds, uh, Scott from Rare Dankness, David Bonvillain from Elite Genetics, Drew West from uh, West Coast Masters, and uh, the legend himself, DJ Short. And, uh yeah, everybody got a chance to tell, uh, talk about their growing experiences and, and give people hints and tricks and tips and all kinds of uh, fun ways to grow. Um, so, yeah, that's that's this episode. Uh, hope you guys enjoy. Uh, San Bernardino 2015 February Grow Panel. Yeah. All right, everybody. Welcome to our three o'clock seminar. And it is a live version of Damn It, Danko. I mean, <laughs> free weed from Danny Danko. All right. If you were around yesterday, you might have seen free hash. Well, today we have a panel of expert cultivators, and Dan is going to introduce them to you. But first, let me introduce this senior cultivation editor for High Times Magazine. Please give a warm welcome to Danny Danko. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming to the cup. I hope you guys are having a blast here. Uh, thanks for taking some time out of the medicating area to come uh, learn a little bit about cultivation, hopefully. Um, I'm going to, without further ado, introduce the guests so we can get right down to talking about um, marijuana growing. Um, to my left uh, is a cannabis legend, as they all are. Uh, Founder, co-founder of TH Seeds and Hemp Works in Amsterdam, the store, uh, Hemp Hood Lamb Coats, and breeder for TH Seeds, uh, multiple Cannabis Cup winner, Adam Dunn. Thanks, Danny. Thank you, Danny, for that. Also host of the Adam Dunn Show, uh, weekly on Wednesdays. <laughs> so check that out. Very good. Uh, to his left, author of Secrets of the West Coast Masters and... Uh, Creator of some cool dab products as well. The Dab Wiser um, is Mr. Drew West. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Big ups to High Times for this. 
And to his left uh, is David Bonvillain from Elite Cannabis and Elite Concentra uh, Elite Botanicals, uh, longtime grower, multiple cup winner, David Bonvillain. Thanks for having me, everybody. Thank you. And to his left, another multiple cannabis cup winner is Scott from Rare Dankness. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thank you. And to his left, last but not least, uh, Mr. DJ Short, a breeder and a legend that needs no introduction. Thank you. Creator of the blueberry and many other incredible strains. So um, we're going to get right into it. Um, what have you guys seen, I guess, that's changed in the last couple of years as far as cultivation goes? What, uh, what new trends are you seeing? Um, I think right now the biggest trend is that uh, I lived in Holland for about 20 years, and I think now that the Dutch technique is being understood a little bit better, I think that the, the problem, with, with the difference that you're going to see is lighting is going to be your big difference for in the next few years. I think if you have uh, air-cooled lights, unless you have a low ceiling situation, there's really no reason for it. I mean, at the end of the day, now it's people are understanding that you can balance your system properly with a good HVAC, run open-ended bulbs, and get much better results. So I think that's going to be the, near, the, the next future right now is lighting. Sure. I'd say the big thing I stay focused on is the way we're training the plants now, uh, kind of redirecting the branches to make an even canopy, sort of more like a bonsai style, the way we train bonsai trees. Uh, finding that it's better for airflow, uh, especially in these bigger grow operations, outdoor greenhouse operations. Kind of just structure your plant in a way that it's just, uh, see, we just did some uh, in the greenhouse this year that were 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot tall but the canopy was only about four foot tall by that area. So just kind of just do the whole bonsai style. We're getting the same yields, cleaning up the uh, pests and powdery mildew problems. And so I just think that uh, structuring the plants needs to be the focus. And uh, I've seen the pictures of the greenhouse that he's talking about. The plants are growing straight up and then across and out. And it allows for that airflow that he's talking about to flow through, which is very important if you're growing big plants like that indoors or in greenhouses. David. Yeah, so I, for one, I would back up what Adam was saying with the lighting technologies, too. We run some big rows in, uh, in Connecticut and now in Illinois, and we've been doing a lot of R&D at our facilities in Colorado. Um, the double-ended bulb technology has been you know, somewhat revolutionary while still staying within you know, high-pressure sodium-type capabilities. Um, yields are increasing, but it is an open hood um, requiring different sorts of volume and space from the canopy of the plants, um, a completely different HVAC approach. And then one of the other things is probably, you know, backing up what Drew was saying, is that really greenhouse growing in general is really starting to explode as legality starts to open up in other states and it becomes more acceptable to run a large-scale greenhouse environment. We run over 20,000 square feet in Colorado, and it really opens your eyes from a smaller mentality of even, you know, if you've been cranking through cycles and really know how to produce well, um, taking it to the scale of 20,000 square foot of greenhouse and raised beds or whatever the technology, you know, the growing technology may actually be, you know, it, it's, it's definitely a different approach. All right. Um, yeah, everything is just getting bigger. I mean, right now, um, we're able to see what you guys have enjoyed for many, many years, which is being able to grow outside in this beautiful sunshine. Uh, Colorado is not the most, uh, hospitable, um, you know, environment for outdoor growing. Uh, you know, we call it, we've called it for years, uh, Colorado stand because it's, you know, pretty much like Afghanistan. It's a, a high desert plateau. 
Um, but now that greenhouses are starting to be allowed and we're able to start seeing CO2 injection and the double-ended bulbs and just everything on a much larger scale, the you know, THC is going up, CBD is going up. We're having a better understanding of uh, some of the lesser cannabinoids. And uh, yeah, man, it's just getting big. So the scale, yeah. Yeah, I will agree on the uh, lighting for the indoor, uh, especially the frequency of the light, I think, uh, is influencing the finished product. And other than that, on the back side, on the harvest side, the processing of resin is really taking leaps and bounds. Uh, formulation of the nice concentrates, I think, is uh, up and coming. All right. Um, one of the problems that seems to be uh, for most of the flowers that you see is, I believe, over-fertilization. Do you guys, uh, what, what, what is a way that people can avoid, I mean, besides the obvious, is, is, there, is there a technique that you could use to basically avoid over-fertilizing or uh, anything you can do to prevent that? Um, I think if you're looking for ease of growing, which is kind of what a lot of people are, a lot of people don't like to tinker all day and deal with it, um, and kind of goes against my original sort of philosophy because I always love to grow in containers and keep everything kind of isolated. But to be quite honest, if you do raise beds with cocoa, even though cocoa is also not my favorite medium, but just for like the simplicity's sake, cocoa on raised beds, you can keep that cocoa for about two years and as long as you don't have any kind of major bug infestations or any kind of problems, you can plug and play that right away. You can take the plant out and harvest it and then it pop that root ball out and drop it in the next day or that same day and continue on. So you have no downtime. And it's the spreading of it between all the plants sort of minimizes your risks on, uh, you know, screwing up on one, you know, because you're watering every plant every day and maybe you're not hitting that one on as uh, optimal. So the, uh, the bigger the bed, the more it kind of balances out everything. It's kind of like having a larger reservoir. It's a lot easier because you're not changing them every single day and having it just slightly different and those little slight differences. It's always, it's always your, you're the one who causes all the problems. You know? That's how it usually works. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, I mean, I find when I'm doing raised beds, it's good to keep the same strain in there because each one specifically can have different needs. You know, you pour water into the same bed, they're all going to get the same thing. It might not, you know, might not, if they don't finish the same time, they have the same thing. Easiest thing, like rule of thumb, if you're using the, like, botanic hair and general nutrients and whatever, use like half what the label says, you know what I mean? And then also, you remember, you just can't force feed the plants. Like, all you're doing is just making that stuff available when it needs it. You know, you can't just be like, oh, I want it to get bigger, I'm going to pour some of this on there, they're going to get bigger. If you get a gnarly chemical, it might do that, but it's not going to increase the quality of your product, you know what I mean? So just remember that all you're doing is like feeding the soil to make what the plants need available at any specific given time there for them. They're going to take what they want, not necessarily like what you feed them, you know what I mean? So that's the biggest, re easiest way to not overfeed, I'd say. David? Yeah, so I, I mean, that's, I, I'll kind of back up what both of them were saying. I was thinking on the hydro side, I would say start with half nutrients because most people are, you know, also wanting you to buy more nutrients. So, I mean, as long as it's not going to kill the plant and you can jack it up, you know, they're going to encourage such things. Um, on our CBD side, we've been doing a lot of microbe organics. And, and it's then in a much larger scale kind of raised bed mentality with a no-till methodology in place, in which case, you know, really the microbes are converting what nutrients the plant needs when it needs it. It's able to take in what it needs, and there's no real risk of, of over-fertilization with, you know, putting in, you know, super high NPK newts. And you're just adding compost on top and 
Yeah, so we inoculate with uh, you know a microbe rich inoculant. So I mean, there's a bunch out there. Um, you know, the microbe man uh, or the microbe life organics um, is a nice inoculant. We use the dragonfly earth meds. Their lush roots is a good product. Um, so we'll inoculate, but we use a lot of compost. Um, we'll use a lot of guanos. Um, and then we regularly use a compost tea a few times through flowering cycles. Um, I mean, compost teas work great as you know, is to fight PM and to fight pests um, because the other bacteria, the beneficial bacteria that'll live on the leaves help fight off any of the other funguses. Um, so, and it just helps keep things in a better balance, especially on our CBD and our hemp side. I mean, it, it's, it makes honestly life easier despite the learning curve initially. And it's really as easy to make as tea. You just steep compost overnight, 24 hours in oxygenated water. So there's a couple of techniques that we've been learning too. This is some of the newer research on you know on compost teas is that you can actually do a compost extract instead of instead of brewing over the course of the evening which generally they would put sugars in so that the microbes start feeding on the sugars um, you can get just as rich of an extract by actually doing a compost extract so in a in what looks like basically a big tea bag you want to have the right kind of mesh on the tea bag so that the everything can get through essentially and it doesn't block um, the ability to extract the beneficials from the compost itself massage it in the water for 15 20 minutes and then you can just water it direct into the soil for a foliar you would want to brew and it's really hard to overfeed with that type of a product yeah, almost impossible Scott? Um, yeah, these guys pretty much covered the dirt and cocoa, keeping newts low, um, you know, use uh, microbes, all that good stuff. Uh, hydro setups, it's a little more about um, cleanliness and maintenance and just putting in the work, uh, you know, monitoring your PPMs uh, with uh, some sort of, um, you know, pen or, uh, or, or PPM monitor, pH monitor. Uh, you know, I use basically... Um, every 10 days, I refill my reservoir completely. It gets drained out. It gets cleaned. I replenish everything. But during that 10-day period, I give it a like two to three-day bleed-down period. Then it gets topped off with just plain water to bring it, you know, to bring the level back up, but allow the PPMs to drop. And then that, you know, flushes through and leaches out a little bit of the salt, and then it brings its PPMs back up. So it's just, it's more of being, you know mindful of what you're doing in a hydro setup, making sure everything is in a fairly consistent range. It doesn't have to be exactly on, you know, a set number, but, you know, within 20 to 50 PPMs all the time. And, uh, yeah, just keep it clean. All right, DJ. Uh, what's fertilizer again? <laughs> I haven't used a, it for, <laughs> for a long time. He has a very extreme uh, <laughs> non-feeding philosophy. Well, yeah, you can fortify your soil. And we're working on a product right now where you start out with an even mix, about 70% uh, of the final mix, and it's either cocoa coir or uh, sphagnum moss mixed with perlite, and you uh, mix these organic nutrients into it, uh, wet it, let it cook for about seven days, and then plant your plants right in it, and it's water only. Uh, the teas are, are excellent to, to add uh, with that as well, but definitely less is more, especially on my outdoor. When I find a nice sweet spot outdoors, um, just nothing. Just kind of fortify that soil a little bit with your garden compost and whatnot and see what that environment imparts to the plant as opposed to the additives we're, we're putting in there. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just don't, I don't use additives. Uh, you have another interesting theory that I'd like you to, uh, to discuss as well, and this is with, with regards to lighting during the flowering period. 
and maybe you could elaborate a little bit. Sure, sure. It's it's a simple. I mean, most people are familiar in their in their bud cycle with the 12-12, 12 on 12 off light cycle. I've been using throughout all my uh, career here uh, 11 hours on, 13 hours off, and you have to understand the difference between genotype and phenotype. Genotype is what the genetic makeup is. Phenotype are the expressions from that genotype that the environment coaxes. And one way to really see some more interesting phenotypes out of a lot of these hybrids is to utilize this little bit longer night uh, dark cycle. There's a bunch of things. You, you know, you could go 10, 14 if you want, but I've been happy at 11, 13, which is basically the flower uh, or bud cycle uh, in the tropics. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've been using that uh, to great success. And, again, it's seeing those phenotypic expressions on the, on the backside of that that you will not see on the 12-12. Yeah. So do you see those same uh, benefits with your blueberry indicas the, using those uh, tropical light? Yeah, yeah, regiments? absolutely. I, I'm pretty sure that that's how I'm able to see perhaps more lucrative phenotypes coming off the backside. This came to me from an old-timer in the... Uh, uh, mid-80s, a guy named Sonny Becker who's no longer with us. He had one of the first light companies out of Junction City, Oregon called AgriLite, and he just said, you know, a little bit longer on the nighttime, plants take in nutrient during the daylight hours, and the main form of food for a plant is light, and they put that uh, light energy into fiber production in the dark cycle. So you can actually see a little bit greater uh, increase in production, and cut back on your electricity a little bit, especially in some of these larger uh, warehouse situations. So it's pretty beneficial all the way around. I've heard no complaints about anybody using it thus far. There may be uh, one or two very specific strains out there, perhaps an autoflower that is dependent on the 1212 for its most uh, beneficial outcome, but you know, I haven't seen that. Everything I've played with so far, I've been much happier with that shorter uh, day period, a little bit longer on the night side. And it's, it saves you an hour of electricity per day as Correct. well, which adds up. Correct. Uh, and, and if you're doing, you know, light deprivation, so that's, you know, take that into account. Instead of 7 in the morning, 7 in the evening, you would be, what, you know, 7 in the morning, 6 in the evening, uh, mm -hmm. putting that shade buck up there. And would you also not recommend a 24-hour on cycle during vegetative? Correct. I, I, I don't use that. I think some people for keeping an autoflower going, it's, it's sort of, you, you have to do that, but I, I don't work with any of those. It's, it's again, you know, an organism needs its sleep time and the plants will adjust to it, but I just, I can't I'm, I'm empathetic towards the, the plants and what they're going through, and that just that 24-hour life cycle just seems like too much. Um, hermaphroditism also seems to come with that off the, uh, on, the, on the flower time. Um, and just a little thing on hermaphroditism I'll throw in here right really quick. My people up in Washington uh, figured this out. Have a, a nice little stable of males. Uh, keep a male. You can keep them in a separate space. They're not going to give off pollen when they're in the veg cycle. Um, and just keep one of those fresh males in your bud room all the time. As you know, Before it gives off pollen, pull it out. So three to four weeks after you put it in, take that one out, put another fresh one in. And by having a male in the bud room, the females tend to not hermaphrodite. They think, oh, the boy's here. We don't need to do that. And it's been working. It just fascinates me, some of these simple little techniques that we can utilize to you know, get over some of these problems. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, 
I can add on that one. I think that's uh, also it's when you're growing anything with Hayes or a real sativa that you've pretty much that's your first thing you want to do is is get that regimen on on point because a lot of people don't realize that that one little hour makes a huge difference. Your buds will stop running on you and not be so so like in between. Like a lot of times people get stuff where it just looks like it wants to flower but it's kind of stuck off so yeah that's a really good technique and i've always used that with anything haze related yeah i went to it two years ago because of dj and all my gardens run at 11 13 at this point and saves money i see just as good a quality of weed if not better i've seen yields go up on certain strains like it you know it defies logic sometimes the the workers can go home a little earlier no (laughs) screw that they gotta stay there all the time but no it it yeah, it, it works, man. You got to try it out. I was kind of skeptical at, at first, and I think it goes along with a lot of the things that we've been taught over the last, you know, three decades. Is It was a lot of just myths and misnomers and, you know, rumors about what this plant would or wouldn't do, and it had these specific parameters that we were supposed to follow. And, you know, now that we can experiment a little we're finding all kinds of uh, really cool ways to manipulate the plant yeah and if you want to say i mean especially on a large or a really large facility the plants need about six hours of really good direct light a day the rest of the light can be pretty ambient it doesn't have to be blasting it you know so the fact that we actually overlight our plants is a wasting money lowering our yields you know and actually lowers your 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 resin production because heat is like the biggest destroyer of everything like it you can get the biggest bud in the world, but it has no resin on it because it's got too close to the light. And it's, you'll always see these little yellow tips on the tips of your plants, and it's a good indicator you need to move that light up or move that plant out of the way a little bit. But, uh, yeah, and it makes a huge, huge difference. All right, sorry to interrupt you guys, but I have to uh, pay the bills here. And you've been hearing about this company a lot if you've been listening to the show probably almost every episode, and it's BC Northern Lights. Uh, What they do is pretty amazing. They create these grow boxes that can give you uh, over five harvests a year in a fully automated growing appliance. I know a lot of people have trouble. uh, They want to start a closet grow. They want to build a cabinet. They want to get started, and then they get bogged down in the minutia and – really just have a lot of trouble just getting out of the starting gate. And I think what these guys do is they provide you with a uh, an express train to Pottsville, so to speak. Uh, they have the roommate, they have the bloom box, they have the producer. All of these are uh, manufactured in Vancouver, Canada, and um, they have everything under control. I mean, odor, uh, CO2 dosing, automated timing for the fans and the filters and the lighting and the watering and pretty much everything you need to take care of is all taken care of and yes you know like i said they're they're pricey but within 10 to 12 short weeks you will have a harvest that can not only provide you with bud but also hopefully pay back some of the cost of the machine or all of the cost of the machine so please do yourself a favor check them out at bcnorthernlights.com or give them a call at 888 888- Two three six one two six six, and get started growing the BC Northern Lights way. One of the things we're seeing with these uh, larger grows is just like uh, Scott said, there's there's new experimentation happening, and you know, some when you're drying you know, hundreds of pounds in a room right next to where other plants might be two or three weeks into flowering. <coughs> Excuse me. 
the, the drying plants can actually have an effect and prematurely ripen the plants in the room over because they give off uh, you know, hormones and auxins and things like that. <coughs> Ethylene. Um, so is that something that you've seen happen? In oh, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest problems with Colorado weed right now is uh, it's just it's not cured well. You know, people don't understand how to handle it once they trim it. And Colorado's a high desert plateau. We have no humidity. So if you don't know how to handle your weed and the weed and the, the air that's within your curing or drying room is not properly dealt with, you end up with herb that you can touch and it literally turns to dust. You guys have never seen that because y'all got humidity here. But like in Colorado, we got dust weed sometimes, like if you don't handle it right. So what we're now having to do and convince people to do when they're building these big facilities is you have to designate a chunk of space. Like that whole back corner in this whole area, if this was going to be weed, we would make a lung room. So all the air that's entering this building goes into that room and it's properly humidified, properly dehumidified, brought to a constant temperature for wherever it's going within the facility. And then you have air handlers and HVACs to handle it from there. That way you cut down on bringing outside molds and outside mildews and introducing all that between the rooms. But it's also like to help with that drying and curing because certain times of the year you'll see humidity levels at 22%. Yeah, you need to put humidifiers in your drying yeah, room. Yeah. So it's really like anti, like you're like, huh? I don't, yeah. I never, this has never happened before. You know, in right? the middle of the summer, man, it'll be so dry that stuff will dry in three days. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. You're talking about harsh, you know, just horrible to smoke weed. So we're having to rethink designing of buildings just to be able to handle, you know, airflow beyond just HVAC airflow. I think the problem about curing, too, is people don't make, they don't distinguish between drying and curing. A lot of people think it's the same thing, but it's not. It's like curing is, I mean, drying is getting the moisture out of the bud. The curing is extracting the chlorophyll out of the bud, right? So it's when you jar it up and the oxygen is contained in there, there's microbes and the oxygen help break down the chlorophyll. Chlorophyll breaks down to a few things, mostly ammonia. It's that smell you get when you open up, like, leave a bag of grass clippings in the bag or something, you know, and you come back a day or two later and you get that smell. Um, that's what you're trying to do with your bud is essentially ex extract the chlorophyll out, get the ammonia out, and then all you're left with is just, you know, the meds. You get most of the, you know, the chlorophyll's no good. So that's, uh, I think a lot of people think that just when the bud is dry, that it's cured and it's ready to go. But the, the curing process is completely different and you got to go beyond, you know what I mean, to get it to be like that. And um, interesting little side note to that, one thing I found was that Dense indica buds dry faster than airy sativa buds. And I think the reason for this is, is that on the indica buds, the glandular stalk trichome, just in particular, I believe was bred strictly for hash production outside of the tropics. In the tropics, there's much less membrane-encased oils in the trichome. Those oils are coming through hairs right onto the surface of the leaf. And um, I, one time I, I was drying, and I had these dense indica buds and these real airy sativas, and I thought, sure, I mean, it was logically the sativa would go first, but no, they definitely held that moisture in. It may be the function of the uh, sativa genetic. Interesting. I think that's also because um, when you have a dense bud, it, it looks beautiful on the outside, but when you break that open, there's not much room there for the trikes to develop. So with a, with a sativa, you have so much more surface area within that bud itself so those trikes get bigger and back in the there was a there was a product called bud blood that came out kind of late late 80s and it was uh 
very high phosphorus, and it would basically blow your buds out like it was. Uh, it would make them open up instead of getting dense, the exact opposite of what we like to do now. And the thought pattern being that when they opened up, there was more area for this resin to be produced. And then as, as long as your plant produces enough resin, you're just filling the gap with resin instead of leaf. You know, We're actually trying to grow resin. We're not trying to grow. We are trying to grow flowers, but we're just trying to grow them with the most surface area possible. And a round, dense nug, even though it weighs like it weighs a lot, it looks good, it's really very little surface area on it. So you're trying to create that. I think that's where people go wrong. It's interesting that you say that. We've been talking about that a lot and, and how the concentrate game may change the grow game because ultimately you need something a little more airy and wispy. It's more advantageous than, than really dense, thick indica bud when you're blasting it for oil. Um, so do you guys think that growing will change and people will, will, will look towards more wispier already has? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll jump on that one first, I guess. It, it, so we run um, a large CBD farm in Colorado, and it's already changed dramatically because of that for us. So, I mean, the majority of the products coming out of, of CBD flowers is extracts, and essentially we're growing, you know, the resinous molecules on the top of those flowers more than we're actually growing flowers because we're regulated under, under hemp agricultural laws, which keeps our THC by requirement at 0.3 or less, so ultimately, we have some varieties that go up to 0 0.5, 0 0.8, 1% THC, which is still you know, amazingly low for a cannabis plant. Um, but given the regulations that we're working under, they have to stay at 0.3. So we actually pull plants at 32 days, 40 days, 45 days. I mean, buds that nobody else would ever think about actually pulling down, but they're, they have 15% CBD at that point. They're only 0.3, and they extract great. So truly, it's like we're growing flowers specifically for extraction, and it's counterintuitive to what we've all learned. Yeah, I mean, there's been a few cups already uh, in the last year where... Uh, the extract guys have pulled their plants down two or three weeks early just so they can capture those extra nosy, nosy terps that are coming out. And to get that cle really clear looking shatter instead of it being yellow or amber or whatever. So, you know, freaking five years ago, if someone told you, hey, you know, harvest your plant three weeks early and lose 40% yield, you'd, you'd be like, no, like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. But because we've gotten to this point now, we can process whole plants we can throw crap in the garbage if it turns out bad i mean it it's it's going to get to a point where we have to look at this plant much like we're looking at the hemp now it's an agricultural crop and five years down the road you're going to see 50 cents a gram wholesale prices on agricultural weed yeah, and I saw, and I, and I know people who basically like call their garden at six weeks where they go in and take all the plants out that are just a little bit weak and, you know, gives room to the other plants. They'll blast all that. And then they started to find out that there were like 15 to 20 percent less yield. And they started to calculate three weeks versus 20 percent. And you're like, well, it, on a large scale, that really doesn't make any sense. You might as well just harvest them early. Again, like you were saying, against, totally against all intuition, which then turns this into a real ag thing where, you know, a lot of guys like grow tomatoes and they don't eat tomatoes. You know what I mean? Eat nothing. Never eat a tomato in their life, but that's their business. That's what they do. And kind of it's going to unfortunately go in that direction in some way, but there will always be the uh, smaller, uh, s smaller gardeners. And I think California is in a unique position because uh, it's going to be when it will end up being like the, the green basket of all of America because once you're allowed to export from state to state, which is you know a few years away, I wouldn't say it's too far away, but once that happens, nobody can really compete with California. 
there's just no way. There's no. There's not. It's not even. It, we can't compete now with regular agriculture. I doubt we're going to be able to all of a sudden jump the game where these guys have been growing all the time and never have stopped. So it's going to be a different way of looking at it. You know, almost want to. You know, it's kind of sad because you're going to be harvesting stuff early, not caring, but. It's more to get the product on the shelf, keep everybody happy, and if they don't, the consumers don't see the difference between a six-week harvested plant and a nine-week harvested plant, maybe even like it more because it's a little less intense for them, or you know, because people will start to go down in uh, needing to have the top, top, top quality all the time. Uh, and people always have the alternative to grow their own, and that's I think we're talking about a lot of this bigger grow stuff. Um, some people here are probably just interested in growing for themselves. Um, because they know that they know what went into it, they know what they're going to get out of it. They know the genetics. Um, so let's let's scale it back down a little bit and just talk about. You, there's a lot of breeders here on the stage, and I know you guys pop a lot of seeds. What's your preferred germination method, and you, what you'd recommend to someone if they were buying a, a ten pack of your of your beans? Um, you know, the simple simple old school paper towel methods, a preferred method for a lot of first timers. Uh, I use Rockwell uh, pH, proper water, allow the cubes to soak to a certain, you know, uh, no more air bubbles. Uh, pull them out, make a little shelf down in the cube and place the seed in and, uh, you know, let her go. Um, when you do that, there's no handling or transferring, you know, of a, an open germ seed. Um, so there's less chance to introduce mildew or bacteria or any of that. Um, you can use those, you know, if you don't like rap, uh, Rockwell, you can try Rapid Rooter or Oasis Cubes or, you know, something like that that's fairly inert um, and is not going to house molds or mildews or anything like that. Um, you know, a seed is a seed, man. It's agriculture. You're always going to have a certain portion of them that won't germ, and that's unfortunately unfortunate. But, um, you know, in a few years, we'll be able to buy, you know, my what I see coming is uh, you'll be able to buy a instead of a ten pack that's a hundred bucks. You're going to see fifteen packs or thirty packs of seeds that are going to cost you twenty or thirty bucks. I agree on the idea of not. I mean, the paper towel method is kind of the most preferred for most people because it's like you, everybody has paper towels, everybody's got that. You boom, you do it. But there's a lot of room for error. Like if it's a dry day, if it dries up too much, it's not going to come back. And uh, like he was saying also, I think the handling is probably your number one, you know, human error again, number one problem. So if you, depending on what medium you're about, what, what you're going to put it into, I, I suggest if you can start it in the exact same medium that you decided that you're going to end it up with, unless that's like something like hydrocorals, then of course it's rock wool. But, uh, you know, for me, really like light soil works better than paper towel technique, just because usually with the paper towel thing, uh, if you take them out too early, they're they're not quite ready, and if you take them out too late, then they're a little bit overdone, and then that's when you damage them. You know, so I, I think it's just like keeping it simple, and don't bury them too deep. Most people end up burying them too deep, thinking that they're gonna make it out. They only have to be about halfway. It's I usually take the the smallest your, your pinky finger fingernail and about that deep. You know, that's about the good length. Unless you got really long pinky nails, and don't go. <laughs> it's like to use a pencil, like we're just up to the point that it's sharpened. You know, that's like the eraser side or whatever. But I just put it in dirt. It's a seed. If it doesn't pop in the dirt, I didn't need it. You know what I mean? Like that's just the period. We pop, you know, hundreds of them, and it's yeah, they will just pop in the dirt. You know, your biggest problem there is overwatering it. You know, you get the dirt too wet, then they'll get they'll just kind of get rotten in there. So it's that's the only thing. But I put all my seeds in dirt. Yeah, sure, just a 12-hour soak, 5 to 7 pH uh, into the paper towel. 
I like to let mine go long, come right out of the shelf. <laughs> what? Jesus, come on, man. Got insurance for that thing? Um, anyhow, uh, the, the reason I do that is because on, on some of the hybrids, especially the Indica hybrids, that little sheath will stay on the seed. The, the shell might slough off, but it, it sticks on, and, and it's terrible to, to lose a seed to that or to have to do the silly surgery with the, uh, I open up, uh, paper clips and whatever, and get the get it off. So by letting it go really long in the in the paper towel, then I will use the standard 16 ounce beer cup, fill it up about two thirds of the way with soil, and then bury that you know two inch uh, tail right up to the cotyledon. As the plant stretches in that cup, add more soil to it, and that'll give it its stability. It won't damp over as easily that way. Um, and that, that's what I've been using for years. A good solution instead of, if a seed does come up and it still has a, uh, the casing or what I call like the helmet on it, a lot of people try to get it, pry it open with their fingernails, that's, that's no good. That's what he's talking about. If you take and just drop like a medicine dropper or water on it two or three times a day, it'll come off in two days every time. DJ, are you saying you soak the, uh, do you actually float the seed for a few hours before you stick it in the paper towel? Yeah, correct, for about 12 hours. Okay. That's also if you have if you if you do have like a lot of seeds that you're going through, that's a good technique because you can just see pretty much within 12 hours whether it's a good seed or not. Because if it doesn't say if it's floating after 12 hours, it's definitely not worth putting in the ground, you know. So that's helps a lot when you have a, a, a shitload of seeds that you're trying to put together, you know. I got another question. Seeing as you guys are talking about paper towels, how do you deal with them growing through? So if you're getting a two-inch tap out of there, right? Like a lot of times, I mean, if these guys in the audience have popped in paper towels, you get the tap growing through the actual. I mean, I've gotten them to live, but just curious your take. Yeah, sure. I'm a looky-loo all the time, so I'm going in there a lot and keeping an eye on them and just don't let them get in there. If they do, again, it's just careful surgery. The wetter things are, the easier they are to deal with it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of what I do. Also, around that age, I see a lot of people make the uh, early mistake of hanging the light and just letting the plant grow up to the light, and they end up with a big, long, stretchy plant that doesn't want to stand up. Uh, I mean, obviously, you guys would recommend lowering the light and raising it as the plant grows, but is there anything else they can do to make that, the trunk of the plant, the main stalk, stronger? You mentioned backfilling a bit as it grows. A light fan. I mean, you know what I mean? It's definitely going to strengthen them. Just uh, very easy at first, but, uh, yeah, constant light fan. Yeah, I've even seen the, uh, like, some of the floppy ones that just want to sort of stretch up if you go with a light fan on it. Not enough to really knock it over, but it'll harden itself up and then, you know, harden off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a friend who uses a hockey stick, just, right, rubs, just rubs the top of them, and, it, and they, just, they bend over a little bit, but then they always come back stronger. It's a good little way to get back into the back corners and stuff. In veg, only in veg, yeah. <laughs> you don't do that in flour. A hockey stick, is he Canadian? <laughs> yeah, I believe he is, yeah. <clears throat> um, okay, so we've gotten through the vegging stage and we have a plant that's ready to flower. Um, do, do you recommend immediately switching the food into flowering food or a transitional phase of, of sorts? Um, yeah, I do a transitional phase. I actually work, uh, lately I've been working with a product called Millennium. And they have an, a product that's designed just for that. It's called Decision. And it's, the idea is that when you're going to go into flour, you do uh, one round of Decision, which basically just cleans it up and gets it ready to receive the next uh, feeding. And then, then it will respond a lot better. You don't, you don't want to stack your nutrients. So if, you're already, if you've just been feeding in nitrogen, if you don't have something like that, you're at least going to flush it 
one round in between to, uh, to set it all up. Yeah, I'll continue feeding veg up until at least the second week of bud. I mean, you see that big explosion of growth in the first uh, couple of weeks of bud when you transition it. Um, that's not creating flowers. That's creating more structure. And for that, it needs to veg food. I think a big problem, big mistake people make is just that day they throw it into 12 and 12. The next time they water it, they give it high phosphorus or whatever, um, high potassium. And uh, that really just messes it up. It stunts it overall. It'll make it flower early. Um, so just keep feeding it the veg. And then I start to kind of, I'll do like a full veg feeding, then like a half a veg feeding, and then a half a veg bud, and then a full bud. And that's usually into like the 10th to 14th day, depending on how frequently they're drinking. But uh, you do that, the transition into the bud is much more stress-free for the plants, and you'll, you just, you're satisfying what it needs more at that point. Yeah, so I'd back that up, too. We go uh, with a higher nitrogen, it, it, at least if we're going hydroponics and feeding the plant directly, um, keeping the nitrogen going through the first 7 to 14 days, kind of depending on the strain, depending on how quick it's going to finish. Some of the sativas go to a full 14 like that. Um, but for a lot of our, our organics, it's kind of backing up DJ's methodology, right? I mean, if you feed the soil properly, the soil feeds the microbes, the microbes feed the plants. Um, so you're never really feeding the plant directly anyway. There's a point during flower that in your top dress, let's say you're giving them a little bit of top dress, you would use a, a higher phosphorus guano than the higher nitrogen guano. But overall, you know, I mean, you've, you've fed the soil properly and, and you're, you know, really shifting your brain out of the methodology of I'm feeding this plant directly and you're more enriching your soil so that the soil can feed the plant. Yeah. DJ? There's a group I've been following lately, um, they had a booth at the last show, a Probiotic Farmers Alliance. They're on uh, Grow Facebook. Kashi's Grow Kashi, right. And basically, they're treating the soil like food. I mean, it's like it's, it's cereals and various things. They're growing their own green manures to mix in there. And the whole concept is just to get this living mycelium mat in, in the soil uh, wad. And that just that's what makes them happy. And then... Once you dial that in right, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to, to work with. It's just getting to that point, retraining ourselves. Right, and that's even indoors. You're talking about indoor correct, grows in correct. containers. And outdoors, too. And that's mycelium. That's a beneficial fungus, yeah? Okay. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know. Yeah, the mycelium. Yeah. No, that's also where those raised beds would really come into effect because now the plants are communicating with each other. And if one plant gets attacked by something, they all know it ahead of the game. And that's kind of where organic, you know, organic farming is about. It's about um, having it all set up so the plants can defend themselves. We're not trying to, to do everything for them, you know? Yeah, I mean, backing up what Adam was saying earlier as far as, you know, being able to go right back into the cocoa. I mean, do some research on no-till methodologies indoors. And there's guys that have been running containers for years on the same soil, basically, in the container and just keep slapping new plants into them. And it's... It's you know kind of contrary to what I learned you know, two decades ago, but you know watching what it, you know soil science at a microbe level is really pretty young. I mean the the leaders and pioneers in that field are still alive and kicking and you know giving presentations like this. So there's yeah there's a great book called Teeming with Microbes that uh, that really describes that process really well. But also if you're doing probiotics like that with plants, you got to remember that if you're going to sterilize your room every single cycle that you have to start all over again. You're back to square one. So, I mean, it's as long as you have a good balance and you feel and you know that it's working, it is quite beneficial to be able to just slap in the next one because a lot of times this stuff takes a long time to get to where it's at. And it's literally, 
at the perfect stage, and then we just harvest it, wipe out everything, start all over again. You know, so it's it is pretty beneficial if you have an ability to do that. A lot of times, people are in weird situations, and they they want to you know for sterility, it makes sense, especially if they get hit with anything, then they definitely don't want that again. But create the perfect environment, and you shouldn't have that because you'll you'll outgrow the uh, the problems. All right, you guys, sorry to interrupt again, but I know you want to grow pot. That's the only reason you're listening to the, the sound of all of us yapping about growing pot. So uh, you have the equipment, you have the know-how, you have everything you need except seeds. And I highly recommend going to Gorilla Seed Bank. That's G-O-R-I-L-L-A dash cannabis dash seeds dot co dot UK. They are out of the UK and they sell seeds. Pretty much every seed bank you can think of, plus some you've probably never heard of, but uh, all very well vetted. Um, they've got the feminized seeds. They've got the autoflowering seeds. They've got regular seeds from all the companies that you know and respect, plenty of the people who've been on the show. Uh, right now, they have a special on super iced grapefruit. Uh, now, this is a very interesting strain. Um, testing at over 22% THC. You can buy individual seeds of this for like 12 13 bucks. You can buy five packs uh, for under $50. And this is a very, very strong high yielder, definitely a crowd pleaser. So check out Gorilla Seed Bank. Um, yeah, they have that super iced grapefruit. They have a number of other amazing different types of strains. You can look up strains by type, by high THC, by sativa, by indica, by everything. And be sure to follow them on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash gorilla seeds so give them a like send them a tweet tell them free weed sent you shout out to gorilla seed bank and now back to the show excellent um we talked a bit about drying and curing uh but Let's discuss flushing because that's another important part of the harvesting process. It actually ha happens before the harvest. But uh, what exactly is flushing and, and how do people go about it? How long do you, would you recommend most growers go about that, Scott? He's staring at me. Um, you know, if you're using a living soil uh, or, you know, the, the, the TLO method or anything like that, like you really don't have to flush. You know, your, your plant's eating what it needs. There's no reason to, you know have a salt buildup. So, you know, it's, it's kind of negated there. Um, in hydro, uh, you definitely need to flush. I think most people overdo it um, kind of right from the get-go, which screws up those last 10, 15 days of, of their hydro cycle. Um, most people just, like, get to the point where they're like, all right, I'm going to flush, empty out the reservoir, put in plain water or whatever, pH it, and then just start feeding that to the plants. And they'll lock right out, you know. Yeah, you'll get that nice fade over the 20 days and all that, but your yield gets killed, the flavor gets killed, the, the plants really aren't even living and processing those last days. They're just kind of freaking out. Um, what I like to do in our hydro setups is those last kind of tw about 20 days out, we'll drop the PPMs from uh, whatever that peak was when we hit the, the, the high, uh, you know, high part of the bloom. And we start lowering that right, you know, right directly after. But once we start getting it down, we'll drop it to within a, you know, a few hundred ppm's, and then over the 20-day cycle, we'll just lower it and lower it and lower it. So the last, you know, three days really, it's getting nothing. 
It's like getting somebody off drugs or something. Yeah, man, you don't you can't, do can't cold turkey. Don't go too quick. You'll kill the patient at that point. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you definitely don't want to go too quick on, on the plants. And yeah, uh, yeah with uh, fulvic acid is a really good thing to hit them yep. with right before you're about to do it. There's certain things you do before you're actually going to flush. It's not really part of the flushing technique, but it is. You kind of loosen everything up, give them a decent flush, but you also got to kind of do it in, in stages yeah, because easy. if you do it too quick, it actually traps everything in for not. It's the opposite of what you're trying to do. I think the soil's a little bit different. Uh, you have to kind of approach it different from the uh, hydro. Typically, I mean, what you're trying to do when you're flushing is remove, leach all the soil from the container. I mean, leach all the nutrients built up in the container and then leave the plant to feed from itself, uh, from the nutrients that is stored up within the fan leaves and other places stores nutrients. So I do actually just complete cold turkey. I mean, we, so, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's rough on it. But it actually depends on the size of the plant too, you know what I mean? If it's a... Yeah, if it's a tiny plant, then yeah, you're gonna need to nurse it along a little bit. But if it's a tree, you know what I mean? Yeah, you can let it go, and there's plenty built up in the soil, plenty built up in the plant. But what you're trying to do is actually to get it to consume what's inside of itself, you know, by cutting it off of what it has been, the source it's been getting it from, which is the pot container or whatever. And then it'll feed all that. And as it does that, it becomes more of a pure product. When you go to smoke it, there's none of those minerals and salts are left over in there because it's already been consumed and manufactured through the plant. And then what you get is the good way to tell whether the bud's been flushed well or not is if it burns clean. Like if it burns like a gray ash, almost like a cigarette. Uh, if you get a bud, you pack it in your bowl and you smoke it and it turns into charcoal and you got to get some metal piece to pry it out of there, that bud's not been flushed well. You know what I mean? But if you, if you take a hit, and it pulls through, then it has, you know what I mean? That's one way I use to determine the cups when we do when we flowers and stuff, you know what I mean? If it, that's the first thing. If it didn't pull through the bong, then I don't even want to try it again, you know? And that's going to be your indication that it was flushed well. Yeah, and absolutely, because <clears throat> when you are judging, uh, a lot of times you'll see the same strain. It'll, if you're in the indica category, you'll see a bunch of OG Kushes, and at that point, you're not judging the strain. You're judging the grower and how well they were able to cure, you know, flush, dry, cure, and feed that plant and, and all that is in the burnability of it and when it's a nice clean white wispy ash you know it's been done well it burns you know a joint will burn at the same rate all the way down and not canoe or, or anything and that that's how you know you know it, it stands above the average you know product that's out there uh, so <laughs> I'm at a loss for topics yeah, um, well, you guys are breeders, too. Um, maybe DJ can take us through, because a lot of people have the dream, like everyone has this dream, that smokes pot is to make their own strain. Uh, not everybody can nor should, but uh, if, you, if, if someone has that desire, and uh, you know, give them an idea of, of what that process entails. Sure. Well, first of all, you're going to need uh, regular type seeds, not feminized, because you're going to want a male out of there. Um, once you determine you have your male, uh, what I suggest to people, especially on smaller uh, personal grows, is just do a separate little space for your boys. You can use a two-foot T5. He doesn't need that much light. You can build a little cabinet for him, even keep him in a separate room. You can actually flower him out in there as well to keep it separate and quarantined from uh, the bud room. Once he's putting out some pollen, I just like to tip him over a big piece of glass, collect up that pollen, filter out the flowers and whatnot. Um, you can actually cut that pollen 100 to 1 with flour, with a fine flour, 
you can also preserve it for almost indefinitely if it's vacuum sealed in a freezer uh, when it's fresh. You got to do this when it's very fresh. At any rate, once you have your pollen, um, you can take that into the grow room and selectively dust a few branches using a Q-tip or a uh, a paintbrush. Make sure all of the vent fans are off to limit any stray pollen going around the room. It's relatively easy to control at that point. Now we'll just do like a lower branch, mark it with a specific colored tag uh, so that I know what it is, and then have yourself a nice handful of seeds to play around with um, at that point in time, especially if you're looking to do pheno hunting and, and things for your own uh, design. Those males are very valuable for that, um, especially from a, a good line. So I recommend it to everyone. It's a, it's a fun process. I'll say this much, too. As, as far as the males go, there are a lot of funky little tricks and techniques, but there is really no shortcut to you know pollinating that female, maturing those seeds, harvesting, curing them, sprouting them, and growing them out to see exactly what the male uh, donated to that uh, progeny. Yeah, leads me back to something uh, he mentioned earlier. When anytime I'm doing breeding, I don't do any uh, pollen collecting unless it's just for preservation. But I'll dedicate a space to let the male and female plants just do their thing naturally. You know, so the the pollen always will just do its natural thing. And the reason I mentioned what he said earlier is I think that that does two things. I think that it creates fewer males in the progeny in the seeds because. The female plants got the feeling that there was plenty of pollen available when they needed it, right? The only reason they're going to create more seeds is if there was a lack of it to start with. That's my theory, okay? Second of all, there'll be less hermaphrodites because of the same reason. Uh, I find that the male plants actually release pollen on a couple different stages throughout the, throughout the course of it. Uh, when you have the two in the same area and it's happening naturally, they're getting all the chromosome transfers that they're not getting if you're just sprinkling uh, flower and pollen or whatever on them. Um, so it's just more, better to let it happen naturally, in my opinion. We get a better, way better rate of females. And I've never seen a Hermie. I mean, that's more of a user error type thing. So, it, But in order to do that, you have to have a space dedicated just to that. Because now you have that strain's pollen there, you know what I mean? And, it's, and all your future stuff's susceptible to it. So if you're just breeding in your house or you've got a little grow tent or something, that by all means is the way you should do it. Collect a little bit, pollinate a branch. But if you're doing it for commercially, you know, and that's what you do, that, and that's the way I would recommend doing it, the natural way. You're not going to beat nature. You're not going to come up with a better way, you know, period. No, I agree. I agree on that also um, as far as letting it do its thing because what, what the interesting part is, I mean, one male donor, you can have still many different crosses in that room. It doesn't have to all be one plant. So you can have six or eight or ten different females all hit with the same male at least you have a steady sort of line to work with. And I, I would suggest, though, that if you're going to experiment with breeding, one of the things you should do is try to work with things that are extremely different. Don't try to take a sour diesel and cross it to a cush because you're not going to really, you're going to have a very hard time discerning the differences. between. They're, they're so subtle at that point. Whereas if you have a purple strain, a purple sativa, and a, a green indica, and you, you, you really will see the difference. Some of them have green leaves, some of them have purple leaves, and you can take notes and start to see patterns developing really quick. And breeding is all only recognizing patterns. It's like just doing the same thing over and over again, recognizing the right pattern, remembering what you had either by notes, 
which none of us used to take. We used to be very bad at that. But now we, now we actually take notes. But back in the day, it was all in your mind. You know, you, I remember the mother, and, I, and it, can get, it can definitely get misconstrued. But the idea being that if you start with two opposite plants, you, you will be able to track them much better, and you'll be able to come up with something at the end. And you might see where you're going completely wrong, too, because a lot of times people, you know, they think it's all great, but then you give it to a real breeder, and they're like, yeah, it's okay, it's kind of flat, doesn't really have much life to it, and, you know, I would have picked a different thing. They, but they're also, yeah, we work normally with numbers in the thousands for everything, and we would like to work in the numbers of hundreds of thousands if we could, because then we would have the best thing. So when you'd start doing things in small, like hundreds or fifties, or it, it is quite hard to pinpoint. So that's where people don't get it sometimes that they're, they may be just chasing it forever, not realizing that they need to grow a few thousand of these plants out to find that one. And I won't pretend to be a breeder like all these other guys here on the stage, but one thing I would say is backing up what Adam uh, was just saying with documentation, approach it like a science, right? Learn what a Punnett square is and actually map out what traits you're trying to get from your plants so that you can you know, apply that documentation and be able to see what really came out of it. Our ability to, to, uh, to analyze you know, at a lab the cannabinoid contents of our plants is, is further than it's ever been before and available to you know, darn near everybody depending on where you're living. So you know, as you're being able to take those things out, being able to take them to a lab, see if you have anything unique in there, I mean, whatever you're tracking, whether it's you know, smell or structure or you know, color or taste, I mean, you should be able to track that, document it, and, and treat it like a scientist, even if you're doing it you know, in your basement just for your own fun. And uh, you know, if you want really, really, really just the best all-around results, uh, you use rare dankness. So. <laughs> uh, a little side note to this yeah. too. I, I just wanted to add is that I, I actually prefer the effect from seeded herb as uh, as opposed to sensimia. It seems to be a broader cannabinoid profile. The plant has gone more through, more through its life cycle, um, and uh, also all of the great sativa of your the tropical sativa were all hermaphroditic, all at least partially seeded. All of the great hash came from field-run herb that was heavily seeded, all open-pollinated seeded. Um, so there's, you know, something to say for the seeded herb, especially for the extracts coming off of it. And I think uh, maybe the future might prove that to be beneficial. All right. I think we have some time for some questions from the crowd. So I'm going to take the wireless and head down there. And uh, you guys can find something to talk scaring, about. You're scaring people away, Danny. <laughs> Jump, Danny, jump. I'll, I'll back up what DJ was just saying, too, with the extract coming from seeded buds. Um, we've been doing a lot of runs of the rare dankness uh, seed runs, and, I mean, the extract is phenomenal. I mean, color-wise and everything, too, right? Like, I mean, it's not like you've degraded anything by, you know, having a seeded crop, and honestly, it's some of the best extract we've run in the last couple of years. I got some uh, a question myself, actually. Um, if you guys could just sum up in like a sentence or two, your advice for someone who wants to win a cannabis cup with their flowers? Uh, Grow rare dankness? Yeah, hey, I mean, uh, yeah, run rare dankness. No. Um, no, I mean, I was right there, you know, friggin' 15, 17 years ago at a cannabis cup in Amsterdam. Um, you know, and I get to sit up here now. So, determination, set goals, you know, understand your limitations and uh, love the plant. You know, ultimately be dedicated to the plant, be dedicated to your art and your craft and 
you know, forget the money. I mean, a lot of people right now, you know, they're so blinded by trying to get rich quick. You know, understand you're in a very privileged time in U.S. history right now where prohibition is ending, and it's our chance to really just set forth this thing, you know, properly and, and by what we want it to be. And, uh, you know, to win a cup, grow good weed, present it really well, cure it really well, and, uh, you know, you don't have to pay high times $5,000 for an ad or any of that stuff, you know, you can't buy your way in, just uh, love the plant. My only advice is just do not compromise integrity for anything. Um, yeah, I would just back up what Scott said, too. It's an unconditional love for the plant and having a true passion for bringing the very best in everything that you can do, right? Like, don't be lazy about it and don't think that you can just leave the plant all week long and then go change your resi and, you know, bang through about eight or nine weeks of that and then be able to go win a cup. I mean, you know, spend the time and love every second of it. Uh, to win a cup, have something unique. And if it's flower, make sure it's very well flushed. And then that's what I'm going to look at the most. <laughs> Yeah, I think bring something new to the table is, is and it's getting harder and harder because you know now everybody's going to do like, oh, I've got East Coast cookie wreck or whatever, you know, and it's like, well, this is all other people's work. You're not really adding too much to this to this pot. So if you can, you know, search high and low, there's guys out there who never, you know, never ordered seeds from Europe or never, you know, took in anybody else's things and have been running the same thing for years, and it's because they stuck to that one thing for years, they've they've got they've succeeded, let's say. And I think if you want to do uh, a cup, I've done enough. And what I realized was everything I ever planned wasn't what I ended up using because at the end, I just went in the room and I said, okay, well, that's definitely not going to be the one because even though I thought it was and I planned on it and maybe I even printed up flyers or some bullshit for it, I'll not use those flyers, pick a totally different strain at the last minute. And then those, those are the cups I ended up winning because I really walked in the room and said, that one's talking to me right now. You know what I mean? And that's, I think, you just got to kind of overshoot it and try as many options as you can, and then in the end, let that decide for you because you'll, you'll do better that way. All right. Uh, any questions, you guys? Anybody? Yeah? Back there? Come on. All right. How's it going? Thank you. Uh, I was just wondering, you were talking about the 11-13 dark cycle, and uh, if you're already in 12-12, would it be a good idea to switch yeah, I don't see it hurting at all. Once once you get there, the the the, the plants will uh, respond accordingly. I, I'll back that one up too, DJ. Like, would you say that you would go from a twelve twelve and then evolve down, or do you cold turkey into an eleven thirteen? Yeah, cold uh, cold turkey right into the eleven thirteen right from. And I I prefer a nineteen five for the strains I'm working with right now. Nineteen on five off for my veg cycle, and I'll just drop right to the eleven thirteen. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you got to change the light, I think it's just best to do it all at once and hope it works out, basically. <laughs> if I, if I, anytime I have a lighting situation like that, like if I come home and my timers didn't work or something went wrong and there's a little panic, what I usually do is I'll let it, I'll give it a chill period of about 24 hours where I just turn the whole lights off, you know, and then let it reset itself because the plants, uh, you know, they do the same thing as anything. They, they are, they're sitting there waiting for things to happen, and when they don't happen, they start to reset themselves. And so uh, that way you, 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 you can always have the lights out for 24 hours. That doesn't really hurt them. It's when the lights are on for 24 hours, that's when you end up with a problem. 
Right. You, you don't want to interrupt the dark part of the cycle. That's the important thing with light. But interrupting the light cycle with a little bit of dark is not the end of the world. All right. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that panel. I certainly did and uh, learned a few things. I hope you learned some things, too. Uh, wrapping it up with raw here, raw papers, as usual, uh, our wrap for the show. <laughs> I want to thank uh, DJ Jock and Winstrong for the tune. I want to thank uh, my panel, Adam Dunn, Scott from Rare Dankness, uh, David from Elite uh, Genetics, Drew West, and, of course, DJ Short. I want to thank my co-host, uh, Mike Hughes. Yeah. Didn't really say too much this episode. No, no, I've been kind of playing it cool, you know, kind of behind the scenes, behind the scenes, kind of roll doing his thing. And so, thanks, to, thanks, and shout out go out to our friends at National Marijuana News. Be sure to download their uh, free app from the App Store uh, if you want to keep up with the latest in National Marijuana News. Um, thanks, as always, to BC Northern Lights and to our sponsors, Gorilla Seed Bank. Uh, and yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Happy 420. Uh, shout out to everybody uh, out there in Denver with us partying. And uh, yeah, we're recording a couple of episodes out there as well. And yeah, there it is. I think uh, I think that's the show. We have wrapped it up with Raw. And now I think we should put it in the books. We're now in Denver. Not now, but by the time you'll be hearing this. And this is <laughs> a long-lost episode from our LA Cup from February. This is the panel that I did with a number of gentlemen who talked about cannabis cultivation. 